I'll invite you this morning to open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. I know your Bible is probably naturally open to 1 Peter, and that's where your habit is. Uh, we're going to take a, a segue here, a, a brief um, um, parenthesis, if you will, in the book of 1 Peter during the holiday season. Uh, a couple messages on Christmas. We're going to preach a New Year's message. I'm thinking about doing a, another special message or two. And somewhere in January, we're going to dig right back into chapter 2, verse 13. Uh, we have some other things that are appropriate for the season, which we're going to address and today, I always wanted to catch the wave of the Christmas season and have us reflect a bit on the meaning of Christmas. Of course, Christmas is a time each year when we celebrate the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? His birth was unique in many, many ways. It was prophesied in the Old Testament that it would take place. Born in Bethlehem, uh, born in the lineage of David, born as a king, uh, born uniquely of a virgin, unlike any other birth that we have seen on the planet, but perhaps most unique of all is his birth was God coming in the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. And you think about it, when you celebrate someone's birthday, you don't really celebrate the day, do you? In fact, um, oftentimes I like to tell our kids at, at their birthdays, I say, well, I remember back years ago when uh, you were in mommy's tummy and I tell the story about the birthday and uh, Yvonne doesn't like that very much actually those aren't real fond memories for her in many times and so when we celebrate birthdays we don't just celebrate the birth itself what do we do we celebrate the the duration of life that has come that commenced at the birthday um, in fact I, I just know that every time our children turn in age turn 12, 13, 8, whatever, and I have an opportunity to pray for them with the family, I always give thanks to the Lord for the years that God has given our children because they're precious and we can't presume upon any more, but then I often then pray that God would give our children many more years to come, that they would glorify God with their lives and honor Christ in all they do. Well, that's what we do with Christ as well. His Christmas Eve, the birth of Jesus. We don't just reflect upon His birth. We, we, we celebrate His birth and everything that that means. His life and His death and His resurrection, His ascension, His current role as the high priest and His promise that He's coming back someday. And that's what makes His birth so special is His life that He lived. And so I thought this Christmas season would be a good opportunity to really reflect upon why Jesus came, because the purpose of why He came explains what He did in His life. And for this reason, this Sunday and next Sunday, I want to spend our time in the book of Hebrews. My message this morning is entitled, Christmas in Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is all about Jesus, who He was and what He did. And if you want to outline the book of Hebrews, you just use the word better. He's more superior. He's better than the angels. He's better than Aaron. He's better than Moses. He's better than the Levitical priesthood. He offered himself as a better sacrifice. And what's interesting about Hebrews, particularly that makes it applicable for us this Christmas season, is that everything that makes Jesus better has to do with the fact that he was incarnated, that he came into the flesh. I mean, the reason why he's superior to the angels is because he was brought into the world as God's son, a name which was not given any of the angels. The reason why he was better than Moses, because Moses was faithful in his house as a servant, 
But Christ was faithful over his house as a son because he'd come and lived among us. <clears throat> he superior him to Aaron and the Levitical priests because as his priesthood was established, it was founded on a different order, the order of Melchizedek, which was a much better order, a, a lasting priesthood rather than the Levitical priests, which were only temporary. They were prohibited by death from continuing on. And Christ offered a superior sacrifice because he didn't offer the blood of bulls and goats, but he offered his own flesh. In order to offer his own flesh, he had to come into the flesh. And so this morning, it's very appropriate this Christmas season here to look at Hebrews. I'm going to pull out three reasons here in Hebrews chapter 1 and chapter 2 about why it is that Jesus came in the flesh. They're just clearest day in the text. You'll trust you'll see them there. The first one comes... In the first two verses of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter one, verses one and two, look at it there. It says God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son. Here's my first point. Jesus came into the flesh to communicate with us. Jesus came in the flesh to communicate with us until Jesus came. God's mode of communication with his people was through the prophets. As it says, God, after he'd spoken through the Lord to the fathers in the prophets, is what it says. God selected certain men who were prophets. God would speak to them. They would turn around and speak to the people. When God chose and anointed Moses, he says, See, I make you as God to Pharaoh. In the sense, he was like, like God to him because he would speak what God spoke. He used Aaron also, and he said this, You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh. And as Moses received God's word as a prophet, spoke unto Aaron, Aaron spoke it to Pharaoh. He was like God because it was God speaking. When God called Jeremiah, the same thing. He says, All that I command you, Jeremiah, you shall speak. When he called Ezekiel, he said, Son of man, I have appointed you as a watchman to the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, warn them from me. And Isaiah also was given a commission. as God told Isaiah what it was that he was to speak, and he was to speak that forth. That's the role of the prophet. The prophet was to speak the words of God to the people. And if you just survey the Old Testament scriptures, you'll see literally hundreds of times this phrase, thus says the Lord. It doesn't matter whether it's Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Amos or Obadiah or Micah. They're all saying, thus saith the Lord. And the idea with that is that they heard from God and they spoke. Children oftentimes play this game called telephone where somebody whispers something in their ear and they turn around and whisper it in someone else's ear and they whisper it in someone else's ear and they whisper it in someone else's ear and they whisper it in someone else's ear. That's much like what a prophet does. Now, when the word tele game telephone oftentimes gets jumbled at the end because they're whispering it. Sometimes it's really hard to understand what they said and you only get one shot at it. But with God, He thundered forth through the prophets and they understood exactly what God said and then they spoke it forth. It was what God did. He spoke to the people, to the fathers, that is to the uh, people who lived before in the prophets. And many of the Old Testament books start with an announcement that says, like Hosea 1, the word of the Lord which came to Hosea, the son of Beri. The word came to Hosea, and that's what I'm writing forth. Joel, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Micah, the word of the Lord which came to Micah. 
Zephaniah, the word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi. And always, this is what a prophet was. He was one God spoke to him and then he spoke to other people. And as it says here in Hebrews 1.1, that it was many portions in many different ways, right? When you study the prophets of how it is they spoke, there's lots of different ways in which they spoke. Moses was a fugitive in Midian and then he came to speak to slaves in Egypt. Hosea was an Israelite with a troubled marriage. Amos was a simple shepherd from Tekoa who brought a message to sinful Israel in the north. Zephaniah was a prophet of royal descent who spoke to Judah in the south. Jeremiah was a son of a priest. And Isaiah had other prophets in his family. You've got all these different things in various different ways. Some received visions, some received dreams, some received a bodily visit from the angel of the Lord himself. Some prophesied for a long time. Isaiah's ministry is over 50 years. And some prophesied very shortly. Some prophets were engaged in miraculous ministries like Elisha or Elijah. Some were, were given just one specific task. Jonah, go to Nineveh to preach to that wicked city there. Some wrote down their messages, and yet there were many, many other prophets that never wrote anything down. This is how God spoke before the time of Christ. Many different ways, many different portions, many different mouths. But with the coming of Jesus, this all changed because it says this in chapter 1, verse 2, in these last days, which continues to today, He has spoken in His Son. You know, there's a finality to these words. Verse 1 seemed to indicate that, that God spoke for a long distance of time, for, for 1,400 years, 2,000 years really, if you go back to Abraham. 2,000 years, God was speaking in different forms, in different ways to different people. But now, once, He has spoken in His Son. And it's not to deny the New Testament revelation. It's not to deny Peter and Paul's words. But it is to say the focus of God's communication with us today is His Son, it's no longer a message that God mediates through His prophets. Rather, it's a message today that comes directly in His Son. J.I. Packer said it so well. He said it this way. The preacher's commission is to declare the whole counsel of God. But the cross is the center of that counsel. And the traveler through the Bible landscape misses his way as soon as he loses sight of the hill called Calvary. In other words, J.I. Packer is saying is that, that Christ is the center of everything. And certainly you need to preach the whole counsel of God, but don't lose sight of Calvary. If you lose sight of Calvary, you've lost your way. In fact, that's the message of 1 Timothy. People involved in endless speculation and genealogies and myths, they lost their way. Because God has spoken today in His Son, I remember my wife when um, she came to Illinois. She was from California where there are lots of hills all around. And she used to told me that in the, in the hills, that was where her bearings was. She could see Mount Diablo there. And wherever she was, she always knew that there's Mount Diablo. So that's whatever, to the north or to the west or wherever, wherever it is. And she said, that's my bearings. I'm watching. There it is. But in the Midwest, without a mountain, at first she felt kind of lost. She didn't have any bearing. And so likewise, as you travel through the Bible, it's all about His Son. And if you miss the message of His Son, you have no bearing. You are like a ship cast and tossed about in the sea in cloud cover. You don't know where you're going. 
There's one message now for all of us. It's not a different message. It's not different people. It's not different means. It's one message that Christ has come in the flesh. And that really is an amazing message. You think about the message of of Christ coming to dwell with us. He lived with us. He walked with us. He talked with us. He ate with us. He communicated directly with us. The Apostle John said it this way. What was from the beginning what we have heard with our ears? What we've seen with our eyes. What we've looked and touched with our hands concerning this word of life. And the life was manifested. And we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and manifest to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you. And what John was saying is we've touched Him. We have felt Him. We've heard Him. And what we have heard and felt and touched and experienced we are proclaiming to you. It's His Son. It's the reality of Christmas. God Himself has come among us. He's taken on flesh and tabernacled. He tented among us. He lived among us. And regarding this Hebrews passage, the purpose of His coming was to communicate. Just as the Old Testament communicated with God's people the message of repentance and forgiveness, so also Christ came to communicate the same message, but in a different way. He came bodily. He came in His Son. Now in our day and age, there's many ways we can communicate. So I was thinking about this. We can take out our cell phones and we can punch a bunch of buttons like this. How many people do you see nowadays that are just kind of holding their cell phone like this and just kind of doing this? They're texting each other. They're text messages. I know we got some girls over here just into that big time. We don't have a cell phone that does that, so I've not yet sent one text message. But I will someday. But I've not, I've not yet. But I do know that it's an amazing thing that you've got people all around the United States and even literally all around the world that you can catch them wherever you want, just send this little text message. Amazing, isn't it, the way we communicate nowadays? It has its drawbacks, though. You can't do a lot. You know, you got to sit there and punch a bunch of buttons, and you can't quite communicate a lot. If you need to communicate a lot, there's always email. Email is a great form of communication. You can communicate a lot. In fact, if I sat down at my computer, in probably about five minutes, I could send everybody in this church the whole contents to 10 or 15 books and just says, here you go, read this. And if you devoted your life to saying, okay, I'm going to read these books, I mean, it would take you months in something I could compose in five minutes. So massive is the ability. I could send it to lots of people, lots of stuff. In fact, we do that at Rock Valley Bible Church each week. If you're on my sermon list, you get uh, the notes of my message every week to all of you, boom, which I'm sure many of you delete. That's fine. Unless you're gone. And they say, oh, what was it that Steve preached on? And you can pick those up. Each week I send out the weekly word trying to communicate the heartbeat of Rock Valley Bible Church. And it's a great advantage, but email has its drawbacks. It has its drawbacks mostly. It's difficult to communicate emotion and intent. Like, like, for instance, email, by the way, and hear this, is a terrible tool for confrontation. It's a terrible tool for confrontation. And yet how often it's used that way. Right? You, you want to confront somebody, you just boom and you send someone. And I've been on the recipient end of some, some blasting emails. And they've been crushing in their criticism. In some instances, I picked up the phone and called people. And they said, oh, that's not what I meant. I said, well, it comes here. Because emo- you can't communicate emotion through email. You just can't do it. And I've learned the painful way in myself having sent bad emails to people that's not the best. You can't communicate your heart very well in email. 
because cold, hard, and factual. But there's a better way to communicate. The telephone. If you need to say something hard to somebody, telephone is much better. Give them a phone call. Talk to them. You can communicate so many more things with your voice and the way you say it and the care with you say it, the way you affirm people in that, that it will be helped. You can be sensitive with the words. You can communicate your heart in the matter with your tone of voice. But you know what? There are times even when a phone call won't do. There are times you need to be face-to-face with others to communicate to them. I think about when a soldier dies in battle, does the United States Army send a text message to the next of kin and say, oh, your son died. Do they send an email? Oh, son died. They give a phone call. What do they do, Roger? You're shaking your head. What do they do? And why do they do that? Because it shows care to go that extra step, to come in person. Nothing in a marriage helps more than face-to-face communication. Nothing in sales helps more than the salesman showing up. And nothing shows you care more than face-to-face communication. Think about what God did in His Son. That's what He did. He did face-to-face communication with us. He came bodily. He came right to be right among us. And what did Jesus communicate? He communicated God's love. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that He would give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. communicated God's love to come in the flesh. He communicated in ways even that wasn't with words. He communicated His grace by touching the leper. He communicated grace by associating with tax gatherers and prostitutes. Levi, the tax collector, after he was saved, invited him to come to a party at his house. Many sinners, people would say, oh, they're sinners, what are you doing? Jesus showed His grace by entering that house to show grace and kindness to these people who didn't deserve it. Jesus forgave the worst of sinners, granted salvation to the thief on the cross. When being crucified, He prayed, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. I'm not sure if you realize, think about this. They're, they're nailing Him to the cross. He's praying that the Father would forgive them. Do you know what that means? That means you need to be nailed to the cross because the very action which they needed forgiveness from was the very action that was causing him so much pain and agony. But that was grace. In coming in the flesh, Jesus communicated God's heart. The Pharisees all about the letter of the law, right? This is the demands, right? Let's do all these things, right? And all this stuff they tried to obey and Jesus brought the spirit of the law not denying many of the things the way to live but says come at it a different way it's not these laws that make you righteous it's it's your heart before God and will manifest itself in a righteous life Jesus communicated God's heart in bringing little children into his arms he didn't expel little children from him he he brought them he communicated God's heart in weeping for unrepentant Jerusalem Jerusalem, Jerusalem how I long to gather you like a hen gathers her chicks. But you were unwilling. And he probably said that with tears streaming down his face. He communicated God's message from the beginning. It was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. His message, turn away from your sin and follow me. He told the rich man, sell all your possessions and then follow me. And a blanket says, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's what Christmas is about. It's about God communicating with us the most personal, intimate, caring way 
possible. Well, looking over then to chapter 2, we find some more reasons why Jesus came into the flesh. Chapter 2, verse 9 tells us that Jesus came into the flesh to taste death for us. Look there at verse 9 of chapter 2. But we do see Him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. There it is. He might taste death for everyone. Now, there's some things we skipped in chapter 2 in order to get up to this point that help us to understand this verse. Verse 9 begins by saying that we do see Jesus was made for a little while lower than the angels. That's a reference to the incarnation. Because being lower than the angels means that you're a man. Like, look back at verse 6, which is a quote from Psalm verse eight, Psalm chapter 8. Verse 6 says this, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you're concerned about him? The psalmist is just marveling that, that God would even look down upon us and, and remember us. And then he says, You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've, you've put him down. And, and I think that Second Peter chapter 2, verse 11 speaks of why it is that we are lower than angels because it says there that angels are greater in might and power than we are. And if angels are greater in might and power, then we are, in some sense, lower than them. And yet, though we are lower, we are crowned with glory and honor. I think that's because we men are the pinnacle of creation. Adam and Eve were the very last beings ever created, and God says that they were good. And of all the things created, it's only human beings that were created in the image of God. Cows aren't in the image of God. Goats aren't in the image of God. Cats aren't in the image of God. It's only man. And I do believe that in creating beings that were in God's image, that that helped lead the way for God then to take on flesh and blood. Because we in some sense reflect God. God come down to us in some sense kept some divinity there in his full humanity in a way that he could never come as a a monkey there's no reflection of God in that but there's a reflection of God in human beings in that sense we are crowned with glory and honor in a way that angels are not and verse 9 then continues right we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels that is we do see him who was made to be a man namely Jesus here's the incarnation here is Christmas So that, here's the purpose, so that because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In other words, he came into the flesh that he might die. He lived to die. When Jesus was living, he knew this. He knew his life was headed towards death. How many times did he tell his disciples before they're going up to Jerusalem? Something to the effect of this. We're going up to Jerusalem. And there I'm going to be hated by the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees. And they're going to hand me over to the Gentiles. I'm going to be beaten and scourged. And then I'm going to die crucified upon a cross. And after three days I'm going to rise again. He said that at least three times to the disciples that we have recorded in scriptures. You can check it out. Mark 8.31, Mark 9.31, Mark 10, verses 33 and 34. And then even after that he came and said, The Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve. 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. How is he going to give his life as a ransom for many? He was going to die a death to purchase our lives. Shortly before his death, he told his disciples, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. He said, Father, glorify your name. Jesus knew full well why it is that he came to live among us. He came to die. Or as the writer of Hebrews says, he came to taste death. But not only his life did Jesus know that he came to die, long before he ever lived, he knew he'd come to die. The first chapter of Ephesians talks about how before the foundation of the world, God chose us in Christ. That means that before the world was ever created, those who would believe were, were chosen in Jesus. And the full implication of that is that they were chosen in the crucifixion of Christ. Jesus knew before the foundation of the world that he would be crucified. Jesus knew full well when he came to earth. He would be despised and forsaken according to the prophecy of Isaiah 53. He knew that he would be pierced for our transgressions. He knew that he would be crushed for our iniquities. He knew that he would be led to slaughter in this life. But such is the love of Christ that he gave his life for his friends. So Jesus knew his life was for the purpose of dying before he came into the flesh, while he was in the flesh, and even there is a hint of it at his birth. Remember that first Christmas when the angel told Mary... Said, you shall name his, you shall name your son what? Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Right? The angel maybe didn't fully understand it. Mary didn't fully understand it. But the one who spoke the message to the angel fully understood it. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. And in order to save his people from their sins, there need to be the shedding of blood. And it was going to be the blood of Jesus that was shed. So it wasn't an accident that Jesus was crucified. It wasn't an accident that Jesus tasted death. That was the very purpose of why it came. In fact, his death was the very means by which we might escape death. Jesus experienced the full reality of his death as a sacrifice. It wasn't just for himself. It was beyond himself. As it says here, his death was for everyone. So he might taste death for everyone. Now, it doesn't mean universal salvation, right? Because even in verse 10, it says that he's going to bring many sons to glory. It doesn't mean he's going to bring all people to glory. But the work of Jesus on the cross had great scope, has scope to everyone who believes. If you go through the book of Hebrews, like understanding what the writer of the Hebrews means by this, it means that those who believe embrace the full impact of the atonement and get to a joint enjoy it like he says in chapter 2 verse 1 right we need to pay closer attention we've heard don't drift away from it because you won't escape if you neglect your salvation and in chapter 4 he said the word that they heard didn't profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard but we who believe enter that rest so if, if you believe you enter that if you believe he died fully for you it's there available to all who would repent of their sins. But it's great in scope. That Christ is the one to taste death for us. And in some ways, I think about how Christ was like Christopher Columbus. You think about Christopher Columbus and 
when he sailed across the ocean. Beforehand, he was looking for funding. He was finding it very difficult to find funding in order to convince people, I'm going to get in these ships and we're going to travel west to get to Asia. And uh, he talked to lots of people, lots of kings, several kings of several different countries. He talked to wealthy people and nobody would seem to fund his venture because it was filled with doubt, filled with uncertainty. Nobody knew how far it was across the ocean. Nobody knew that whether or not ships could get there or not. And, and they all knew that there would reach a point where you get halfway across where you'd have to say, we've used up half of our supplies and are we going to continue on to the point of no return or are we going to turn back? And, and at some point, Columbus would have had to make that decision if he didn't reach land. Go way out, half your supplies are gone and then come back. And in fact, Ferdinand and Isabella who funded the first trip, they didn't expect Christopher Columbus to ever return. They expect to go out, <laughs> sayonara, see ya, wherever. Never see them again. But think about this. We know that Christopher Columbus went and found India, quote-unquote. Actually, he found America, found the New World. But after he found the New World and came back, wouldn't it be easier for the second person to go? I mean, because think about them. They got halfway there, or they've used up half their supplies, but they're two-thirds of the way there. They know that they've got a half of their supplies to get the last third of the way. They could get there because they knew it was on the other side because he blazed the trail. And so also Christ in his death blazed the trail for us in many ways. He tasted death for us. He got to the other side. He came back and said, look, disciples, I'm alive. Appeared to 500 people and said, I'm alive. And really, now as we face death, we should have nothing to fear because Christ has gone there for us. As the writer of Hebrews mentions down in chapter 2, verse 14, same thing. He's tasting death so we might not fear. Look at chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Again, we see Christmas coming here, right? Since the children share in flesh and blood, since we have flesh and blood, Christ himself likewise also partook of the same. Christ also became flesh. Why? Two purposes. One is that he might defeat Satan. Verse 14b. And second, that he might free us from fear. I think about defeating Satan. Here's the first purpose, right? Verse 14. That through death he might render powerless him with the power of death, that is, the devil. And down through the ages, Satan has brought his attacks upon many people. He tempted Jesus. He threw others in prison. He put it in the heart of Judas to betray our Lord. He destroyed Job's life by taking away all his wealth and all his family and his health. But the biggest weapon that Satan possesses in his arsenal is the death card. That's his biggest weapon in many ways. And should he so choose, and should God permit it, he could put us to death. In fact, that is even the sense in Revelation 2, talking about Smyrna. He said, Satan has thrown you in prison, but you be faithful unto death and I'll give you the crown of life. Who was killing him? Satan was involved in that death. And when Satan went to discuss life about Job, the Lord said, behold, he's in your power, just spare his life. The implication there is if God had said, he's in your power, do anything you want. His life was in his power. He could have taken him down in many different ways, you know. 
could have um, inflicted in the heart of a terrorist to come and kill him or something. I mean, he could have done many different ways. Satan could have. But with all the attacks that Satan never does upon us, he needs to have permission to do so. At night when Jesus was betrayed, he said, Peter, Satan's come and has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. Right? There's Satan wanting to come and do some evil, and God, God permits and lets, but Satan still does that there. But the worst thing that Satan can ultimately do to us is kill us. But Christ has made him powerless by conquering death, right? That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, right? The devil had the power of death, but through the death of Christ, he rendered him powerless. John Owen's classic is entitled, The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. It's exactly what took place. In the death of Christ, we put to death, death. As in Adam, all die, so also in Christ will all be made alive. It's because Christ died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust to bring us to God. Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. He abolished death, the power of death, because now through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he gives us hope. He frees us from fear is what the second purpose is that he gives us here for the incarnation. Verse 15, he might free those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. You know, when people live under the fear of death, there's this bondage that develops. Um, you think about death, often it will bring a heaviness upon you. Every day we walk one step closer to that day. Has there ever been anything in your life that you know that you have to do? Maybe something hard at work that's got to be done. Maybe you've got to fire a, a fellow worker. Or maybe there's got to be some confrontation. You've got to talk to somebody. Or maybe there's some fear of some physical thing you have to do. And there's a fear like that. Oftentimes we do is we just don't want to talk about it. Right? We don't want to think about it. And then all of a sudden, ooh, stepping towards that day where this this is coming. You know, whatever, my husband's gone on a business trip and I'm going to be at home alone for four four days. I know one wife who, uh, whenever his hus- her husband went away for a, a trip, she always took a couch and put it right in front of the door just to protect herself from the intruders coming in the door. I mean, that, that's just fearing it and, and, and not liking it. And then she would look look and anticipate that day. Right? There'd be some bondage and some nervousness that she didn't like that. Well, I think this is the reason why so many of us don't like to think about death. Don't like to think about that day when we're going to die. Because there's a bondage that comes upon us. But listen, through the incarnation, death and resurrection of Christ, He's freed us from that bondage. There's no reason to fear death anymore because Christ has conquered it. We simply believe Him and we will see Him beyond the grave. I recently read an account of a woman who endured a great battle in this life. She lost her young child at a young age. And then two years later, she um, got cancer. Just looking at death, face in her eyes. But because of her faith, she didn't respond in fear. She responded in hope. Listen to her words, which she said. She said, I don't fear death in the way I once did. I don't fear pain and physical difficulty the way I once did. I experienced far more than watching a child die with an illness. As I watched my child get thinner and thinner and seem to waste away into death, I saw the Lord grow stronger and stronger in my life. He became more powerful and awesome week by week as my Savior, Redeemer, Healer, and Lord. The darker the days became as my child grew sicker and sicker, the brighter the Lord shone in my life, and He continues to shine it now. I intend to recover from this disease called cancer so I can continue to be a a mother to my two other children. 
I intend to live my life victoriously in Christ Jesus until the day he calls me home. But if he should call me home sooner rather than later, I'm ready for that as well. He has shown me his sustaining grace every day and continues to reveal his grace and love to me every day. I know him in ways I didn't know him a few years ago. I have full confidence that he will never leave me nor forsake me. I will all, he will only hold me tighter and tighter in his everlasting embrace. And when you embrace that kind of perspective, you can face the trials that death brings because you know that you can look beyond the grave to the grace that will come. And in fact, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, is all about hope. Late in chapter 6, very last few verses, the writer talks about the hope we have. And it's all because of the death of Jesus. It's all because of Jesus' wit blazing the trail at Christopher Columbus. He says, This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has become the forerunner for us. Christmas time is a time of hope. It's a time which Christ has come to conquer death. So we don't need to fear death anymore because he tasted it for us. Well, third point this morning, Christ is coming to the flesh to communicate with us, to taste death for us, and finally to be merciful to us. Look at verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And again, I find it amazing. You're deep in the book of Hebrews. We're talking about Christmas. We're talking about Christ Jesus made like his brethren in all things. It refers to the incarnation. It refers to the time we took on flesh and blood. His sharing of our experiences. And in fact, look at how encompassing this is. Made like his brethren in all things. Just not the physical pains and pleasures that he experienced. It's far beyond that. Jesus experienced everything we do. He, he, as a child, faced the hunger pangs like a baby. He could experience the love of a mother's embrace. He could experience the pain of stepping on a nail. He could enjoy the warmth of the sun's rays during the, during the summer or during the winter. Right? When it's out like this, the sun is shining. Someone, someone said to me as they're walking in, the sun is shining today. Makes a great day, right? The sun beams on your face in the midst of the cold. It's a pleasure. Jesus could be hurt by those at school who were mean to him. Little synagogue boys who weren't sanctified, hated their sanctified classmate. He could know the satisfaction of a cool drink on a hot day. You know, it's really hot and you get this cold glass of water. You drink it down, you can feel it coming down. Doesn't it feel good? Jesus felt that stuff. He could live through the joys and sorrows of relationships. He lost a close friend to death, Lazarus. He could feel the pain of being betrayed by a close friend because Judas betrayed him with a kiss. When he was 12, he spent much time with. He could experience the joys of dwelling in unity like he did with his disciples. He experienced life as a man. And in doing so, it's enabled him to be merciful to us. Because first, he was faithful. He may become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. You know, it was important for him to be a faithful priest first before he could be a merciful priest. It was prophesied of him in Psalm 110 that he would be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. But in order for Jesus to be a priest for us, he had to be made like us. 
In order to be a faithful priest for us, he had to be like us. Because for a high priest to represent other men, he had to be a fellow man himself. Hebrews 5.1 Every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things appointed to God. If you're a high priest for men, you need to be a man. And that's what he was. The high priest, think about his role. He would enter into the holy place, the sacrifice. He'd present his sacrifice there before the mercy seat, first for his own sins. Right? And he had to be a faithful high priest to offer the sacrifice for his own sins, doing things in God's way, trusting in him. And then after his sins were wiped away, he, he had to be faithful in taking the other sacrifice he had and putting it there on the altar of the Lord. And then praying and pleading for God to be merciful to the people. But it takes a faithful high priest to be a merciful high priest. And that's what Jesus did. He didn't bring the blood of bulls and goats, however. He brought his own blood. And in bringing his own blood, as it says there in 2.17, he made propitiation for the sins of the people. That is, he satisfied God's anger towards us because of our sin. And he changed it all around so that God is happy because of what Jesus did. That's what propitiation means. To appease his wrath and give pleasure in the eyes of God. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice for sins once for all. And through faith in Him, we experience all the effects of this forgiveness. We don't need to stand condemned before the throne of God. We have a perfect plea, a great high priest who ever lives to plead for me. And I just say this wonderful thing about this high priest is that he's a merciful high priest. Not only did Jesus accomplish the task for us, but he also came as a kind and compassionate high priest. He looks down upon us with a merciful disposition on his heart. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 2, it says that um, he can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided. Talking about a human priest, since he himself also is beset with weakness. And Jesus, though he isn't beset with weakness, can still deal gently with us because he's been one of us. And that's the point of verse 18, right? For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered... He's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Jesus knew what it was like for his flesh to desire bread after fasting for 40 days and being tempted by the devil to make that stone into a piece of bread to satisfy his earthly cravings. He knew that. Jesus knew what it was like to feel like he needed to prove himself to be right. If you are the Son of God, cast yourself off of this and won't angels come and protect you? How many times do you young men feel you need to prove yourself when someone taunts you? Or upon the cross, think about how many times he felt the need to, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. You saved others, save yourself. And Jesus had to take it all. All that ridicule where he could have, he knew the temptation of what it meant to try to prove himself. Jesus knew what it was like to have the temptation to, to take a shortcut, to uh, reach the ends through faulty means. Right? Just bow down and worship me and I'll give you all the kings of the world, Satan says. <laughs> Just take this little shortcut at work and it'll be okay. Jesus knew all these temptations. He felt it firsthand. And because he felt it, he is able to help those who are tempted as well. And this is a great reality of Christmas. God has come into the flesh to walk among us. And through his experiences, he's able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. You know, it's often said you should never criticize anybody until you've walked a mile in their shoes. That's really good advice. Because you don't know the difficulties that others fully face until you face them yourselves. But listen, 
because of what began that Christmas morning in Bethlehem so long ago, Jesus has walked a mile in our shoes. In fact, he's walked seven miles in our shoes. And I don't care how great your hurt is. I don't care how great your pain is. I don't care how unique your circumstances are. Jesus knows all about it. And he is able to sympathize with your troubles. And he'll be merciful to you if you just but seek him. Well, one last verse. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 4. Verse 14. I want to read verses 14 through 16. Because this is the hope of Christmas. Is that we have this high priest. And next week, actually, we're going to be talking more about what it meant that Jesus was a high priest. We're going to dig into that more because that, that was the essence of him coming. He came as a high priest among us. But here it says in Hebrews 4.14, Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, he says, here's the conclusion, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Who needs grace and mercy today? I need grace and mercy. We need it every hour. And what an amazing thing it is that we, right where we are, can draw near to God. Simply praying to Him. And by drawing near to Him, we enter the throne of grace in heaven that we may receive mercy. Because we need mercy. Every time you sin, it's a reminder you need mercy. And receive grace to help in time of need. Conquer sin in your life to, to live for Christ. You need grace in Christ because He can sympathize with our every weakness. Because He became flesh, can help us and give us grace and mercy and kindness. And Christmas, if anything, calls us to draw near to our merciful and faithful High Priest. So let's do that now, and we can close our service. Lord, I thank you for the Christmas season that you've given us, Christ. He communicated to us in flesh and blood, face to face. Many saw him, many walked with him, and we merely hear the testimony of those who saw him and experienced him. And I pray, Lord, that we would never lose sight of the hill called Calvary. Keep Christ our center and our focus of everything, because that is how you've spoken to us in your Son in these days. Thank you that Christ conquered death for us. Death no longer has mastery over us. Oh, sure, we will die physically unless Christ comes back sooner. But we will live again because of Christ's resurrection from the dead. And we have no need to fear death. And so, Lord, for those who do fear death, God, if they don't believe you and trust in you, I pray you'd convict them of their sin and lead them to the Savior so they can overcome that fear. And for those of us who fear our death, Teach us to understand perhaps it's the fear of dying or the death itself. Pray you'd help us to overcome those things. I think about the early martyrs. What is it that allowed Polycarp, O Lord, to, to stand and be burned, eaten by lions? It's only because he didn't fear death. What is it that allows Christians in Muslim countries to speak boldly forth the name of Christ and have their houses burned and sometimes killed? the testimonies because we don't fear death. And so I pray you'd give us similar courage in our hearts to know this Christmas season that Christ came to die so that we might not fear death, so that we might live. 
I pray, Lord, that you would be merciful to us. I think about the sins that we continue to commit, the sins that so easily entangle us. I pray, Lord, you'd be merciful and give us the grace that we might run with endurance the race that is set before us. Lord, we need your help. I pray you'd help us in these things. I thank you that you are a great high priest and that when we are tempted to despair, um, you come and you help because you are a perfect plea who please ever before the, the throne of grace, please ever before your Father that, that the Father would look upon his blood in exchange for our blood. And that causes us to rejoice this day. That we might go forth as happy and joyful people because of the joys of what Christmas means and represents. We pray in Christ's name.